Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church of Wittenberg, 31st of October, 1517, is one of the most famous events in Western history. It inaugurated the Protestant Reformation and has for centuries been a powerful and enduring symbol of religious freedom of conscience and of righteous protest against the abuse of power. In his new book, 1517, Martin Luther and the Invention of the Reformation, historian and author Peter Marshall argues that the incident probably never happened. And uh, in tracing how and why a quote-unquote non-event ended up becoming a defining episode of modern historical imagination, he explores the multiple ways in which the figure of Martin Luther and the nature of the Reformation itself have been remembered and used for their own purposes by subsequent generations of Protestants and others in Germany, Britain, the United States, and elsewhere. And uh, the intention is not to debunk or to belittle Luther's achievement, but rather to invite renewed reflection on how the past speaks to the present and on how all too often the present creates the past in its own image and likeness. We have with us for the hour Peter Marshall. Uh, he is uh, going to give the Tanner Lecture, lecture in the Tanner uh, Talk Series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And uh, you're invited to that, free and open to the public. That's at 7 p.m., in the Taggart Student Center Auditorium, a book signing follows. And again, that's uh, free and open uh, to the public. Uh, Peter Marshall is a professor of history at the University of Warwick, a leading uh, expert in the history of the Reformation and its impact in the British Isles and uh, beyond. He joins us for the hour. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a great pleasure to be here. I guess we need to uh, get your uh, microphone uh, going here. Hopefully that's better. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Tom. Real pleasure to be with you. So this is um, uh, this is an, an interesting um, approach to the 500th anniversary. That the the famous event that we all think we know probably didn't happen. Well, yeah, I guess it, it might seem to some people a bit kind of bad natured and, and party pooping <laughs> when there's this huge international celebration of of Martin Luther's inauguration of the Protestant Reformation uh, to pick on this famous event mm. um, and um, suggest that maybe we need to think about it uh, again. Um, I'm not the first person to, to do this, but it's an interesting question, I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so if it, I mean, it might be interesting for people if I just run quickly through uh, the, the story of this. So yes, the, yes. The, the posting of the 95 theses, these are the protests against the indulgence that Pope Leo X uh, has um, drawn up and is being sold in Germany uh, to fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, uh, which has in, involved a kind of dodgy deal with the Archbishop of Mainz, so he'll keep half the proceeds so he can pay back the bankers who'd lent him the money to buy his archbishopric in the first place. It's a kind of financial scandal and a, a, an example of how uh, religion, power, and finance have become intertwined in a kind of un unhealthy way. So mm -hmm. Luther's unhappy about it, as a lot of people are. Uh, and he does, of course, draw up 95 theses. Um, but what does that actually mean at the time? I mean, I think this is where um, the idea that this is a kind of starting pistol for the Reformation is one we might need to, to rethink. Mm -hmm. um, he wants to start a disputation, and a disputation is something that happens very regularly in universities at the time, when scholars will discuss in Latin a series of propositions, and the 95 Theses are, are designed to, to do that. Um, and usually these would be posted on the doors of, of churches, but that wasn't a particularly big deal. That was actually in the, the statutes of the university. This is how you inaugurate a debate 
is to publicly advertise your theses so that not ordinary people passing by, but scholars with Latin can take note and put it in their diaries, so to, so to speak. Um, and Luther had done this several times before. Um, you know, it's sometimes suggested that this is really just like kind of updating a faculty web page or putting a lecture list up mm. on, a, on a notice board. And, and the door of the, the castle church in Wittenberg is the sort of official notice board of, of the university. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason to think that he might have done it, but if he did... Um, it wasn't a kind of revolutionary um, gesture or something would have struck people as very surprising. Uh, okay, so what are the reasons for thinking that he perhaps didn't? Um, one is um, Luther himself, I think we call as the first witness here. The, the really important piece of evidence we have is a surviving letter which he writes to the Archbishop I just mentioned, Archbishop Albrecht of, of Mainz, saying he's very unhappy about these indulgences, and uh, if only the archbishop knew, he says, you know, maybe with his tongue slightly in cheek, um, what terrible things indulgence preachers are saying, he would stop this, of course, at once. Uh, and he's enclosing in the letter these 95 theses that he's, he's written. Um, but he's not going to publicize them. He's not going to start a debate. Um, he's going to g- give the bishops an opportunity to kind of look into this and, and redress it. And he says similar things in several letters over the following months, including actually one to the Pope himself in, in the spring of the following year, 1518, when he said, I didn't want this to happen. It wasn't my doing. The theses kind of got out. Um, and it's actually nearly 30 years later when um, the posting of the 95 Theses is mentioned for the very first time uh, by Luther's associate Philip Melanchthon um, and another um, sort of disciple of his called Georg Röhrer, who, who mention, um, without making a big fanfare out of it, they just mention that the theses were put on, on the doors of, of churches in, in Wittenberg. And maybe they're saying that because looking back, they think, oh, well, that must have happened because that's what we always normally do when mm-hmm. there's a debate in the university. And as I suggest in the book, it's really some time after that that people start thinking this is a really extraordinary big event which we should commemorate and celebrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as you write the book, one of your main themes in the book is um, how the past speaks to the present and how the present creates the past in its own image, right? So, yep. so, so maybe speak to how this has been used. And it, it wasn't until fairly recent times that, that this became a central uh, commemorative event, right? The, I, think, I think that's right. And, I, I mean, in the book, I'm kind of less interested, I suppose, in the, the events of the Reformation itself, as in what the Reformation uh, comes to mean in our historical uh, understanding. And even actually that term, the Reformation, is kind of quite interesting. When do we start thinking there was you know, a thing with a capital T, a capital R, um, which uh, we, we can see starting at one moment and perhaps coming to an end uh, at another? Um, so uh, the kind of history of memory, I think, is, is, is really important. Um, it's actually a 400 years after this, in 1617, that I think that the story I'm interested in really kind of takes root. Um, and there the reasons for that are, are actually pretty political. A hundred years after Luther starts his protest, uh, the Protestants are kind of on the back foot. Uh, we've had the Council of Trent in the Catholic Church. Um, uh, politically in, in Germany, um, some people have started converting back to Catholicism. The Catholic Holy Roman Emperor is kind of gathering his forces. So Protestants feel really beleaguered. And, um, of course, by this stage, Protestants themselves have become split. Some of them uh, now call themselves Lutheran, uh, a phrase Luther would, himself would have been horrified to, to hear. Uh, others are followers of John Calvin, Calvinists. 
Um, so in a couple of places in Germany, they hit on the idea uh, of kind of rallying the, the, the troops by having a pan-Protestant celebration of 100 years since Martin Luther started the protest against Rome. So 1617, um, just really on the eve of the Thirty Years' War, when it all blows up and there's uh, several decades of religious warfare on, in, in Germany. And that's a particularly interesting moment because that, as far as we can tell, is actually the first major historical centenary celebrated anywhere in Europe. It wasn't really a, a thing before that that point, so something which sort of seems natural to us now that, you know, we look back to something that happened 100 years uh, earlier. Um, so, of course, we've got um, the Russian Revolution <laughs> we're, we're looking at or, or the entry of the U.S. into the First World War. Um, uh, just seems a, a natural thing to do. But that, that itself, someone had to make that decision, uh, and they did so for, for political reasons principally. Mm. Yeah, that, it, it wasn't a thing until, until it became a thing, right? It's Absol- for political reasons, let's yeah. celebrate the the 100th anniversary of absolutely, of and and it becomes a really big thing. <laughs> if we can carry on putting it that way, um, not until 1817, until the 19th century. And uh, I, I say in the book again, perhaps a little bit cheekily, that the Reformation is really invented in the 19th century, mm-hmm. um, and and Germans particularly. Um, uh, your listeners may know that, that Germany at the start of the 19th century is not a united country. Um, it is by the end. German unification is kind of the big political event of 19th century Europe in, in, in some ways. But there's this growing nationalistic feeling. That, um, having fought the Napoleonic Wars against French and um, defeated Napoleon and his attempt to dominate Germany, uh, Germans are feeling kind of resurgent, want to bring the country together. And Luther becomes a, a symbol of German pride, German nationhood. Um, with a kind of Protestant coloring, of course, though it seems to me that in the 19th century, actually, in some ways, Luther's actual theology, his religious ideas are, are less important than his symbolic value as somebody who stands up against the established powers, um, who stands up against what is seen by this stage as um, superstitious religion. That's how Catholicism is widely regarded in, in the 19th century. So, so he's a kind of figure of liberation, a figure of enlightenment, a figure who represents the, the individual against the impersonal forces of the state. And uh, for all those reasons, I think that image of this moment, which maybe never happened at all, or if it did happen, wasn't such a big deal, uh, the friar standing with his hammer and his nails um, banging his protest onto the door of the church really captures the imagination of people. Mm. I want to bring this in uh, here now and we'll loop back to uh, a little earlier in America. Um, I, I, this was a gap in my knowledge of Martin Luther King Jr. But I, I learned that he, uh, he, had, he attached, I don't know if he nailed, but he, had, he attached some demands to the, uh, the door of City Hall in Chicago. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, 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 and this is, I think, is an, is an example of how, whether it happened or not, um, our memory of this episode can be a really positive and inspiring um, gesture. So this is, if I remember rightly, this is July 1966, uh, a big protest rally around issues of social and racial justice in, in Chicago, um, which is to culminate um, with a march on the city hall to present these demands to the, the famous or notorious uh, Mayor Richard Daley. 
um, who has perhaps wisely taken the opportunity not to be there, and City Hall is all locked up. Um, but uh, Martin Luther King, and of course, you know, the name there is really is really significant. Um, he uh, he fixes the, the list of demands to the door, and um, in uh, her autobiography, Coretta King, the, the widow, writes um, some years later that this is a magnificent symbolic gesture ringing down the centuries from from his namesake. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also talk about nineteenth um, century America and uh, and what the ninety five theses and nailings or the this symbol meant at that point yeah um, the, I mean I was I was trying to look to see different places in in well really across the world, not just in Europe uh, how this symbol is is taken on board um, in my own country in in Britain, or perhaps more accurate to say in England there's relatively little interest. The Church of England has always had a, a slightly distant relationship with Martin Luther. Uh, and Anglicans, even today, perhaps don't really like the idea that Martin Luther is their founding figure. So in, in, in 1817, uh, the Church of England pretty much officially I- ignores the, the, the event. Um, but the, the, the young American Republic, of course, um, has many Lutherans in it, often from Germany and, and, and Scandinavia. Um, and so it's a way, I think, they can uh, affirm their identity in, in this new land, but also kind of tie it to their new identity. So you, you find Lutheran preachers saying things like, you know, the, the 31st of October and the 4th of July. These are dates that must go together. One of them stands for religious liberty. One of them stands for, for political liberty. And of course, freedom of religion, uh, one of the founding principles uh, of, of the United States right through t- to this day, of course, really, really important, the idea of free practice of religion, something which was not the case in the Europe that so many early Americans uh, were removing themselves from. Uh, so it, that, it, yeah. it, it's, Luther is, I think, tremendously important in the American imagination. Mm-hmm. Of course, all sorts of uh, groups um, would, would, would seek to appropriate this symbol. Um, I believe the Nazis wanted, had interest in what Luther stood for. Yeah, a- ab- absolutely. So there's a sort of dark side of this story, I think, as, as well as the kind of more positive, enlightening, um, liberating one. And, and, and in a way, it's, it's the flip side of, of the nationalism. And, and German nationalism, of course, um, was about greater participation and freedom and uh, citizenship rather than just the, the rule by all these hereditary kings and, and princes. But uh, nationalism, of course, always has the, the potential to be a rather... Um, uh, a violent and exclusive sort of force, and um, that that comes to a head actually even before the Nazi takeover. I think, um, uh, of course, one of the the anniversaries of the Reformation, 1917, falls smack in the middle of the First World War, and this is almost a, a rather sort of tragic story. I think because there'd been big planning for a huge international celebration in in Wittenberg, which would involve delegates from America and from Britain and from right across Europe. And this 19th century story of a shared heritage of enlightenment and freedom would would have this this, um, uh, big party. Um, But of course, by 1917, Europe is at war. Um, Some very interesting kind of um, cross currents and counter currents. So Germany is now allied to Catholic Austria, fighting against Protestant Britain and Protestant America. Uh, And so um, Luther goes from being this kind of universal symbol um, in the eyes of many Germans back to being our guy. You know, he he stands for um, the values of of German um, 
freedom and culture and lots of writing about how you know the the Reformation could never have happened without the German spirit, and it's very much our uh, our thing. Um, and uh, so so Luther is kind of co-opted into the war effort, almost so to so to speak. Um, and then after the defeat in the First World War, as um, this even darker current of uh, nationalism rises with with the Nazis, um, a, a lot of Nazi leaders rather like this symbol of, you know, breaking down an old order and starting afresh with a, a list of propositions. So, um, actually, in the official history of the the, the, the Nazi Party, um, when Hitler unveils the the it's a 20-point program of, of the party uh, in Munich in 1920. This is directly compared to the, the thesis posting of, of, of Martin Luther. Hmm. What about uh, t- today? We're in another anniversary year, uh, uh, 2017. Uh, what have, how's, how things shifted, do you think, do you, do you, uh, the, this event or non, non-event, this uh, starting pistol for the Re- Reformation, what does it stand for now, do you think for most people? Well, that's that's really interesting, and in some ways, I think it's almost um, um, too early to to tell. And uh, also, being honest about it, I think some of us historians have been too busy talking about what happened in the past, <laughs> right. pay enough attention to what's going on in in the present. I guess the good news is that people are still really interested. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here um, talking to you. Um, anniversaries. I mean, it struck me when, when I started thinking about this topic and about the book. Um, th- th- they're a bit kind of double-edged. I mean, on the one hand, they're just these fantastic moments where we can have a big conversation about these themes. And even people who a lot of the time perhaps aren't particularly interested in history, you know, these anniversaries catch th- th- their attention. And um, obviously give those of us who study and, and write history an opportunity to publish more books. Uh, and that's generally generally good. Um, uh, I suppose the, the kind of danger with the anniversary is there can be a kind of ritual quality to it where, you know, we already know the story, we kind of celebrate it again. So we sort of tell ourselves what we already know, so to speak. And I think there's been um, there's been a little element of that in what I've you know heard and read. Um, still these ideas that the Reformation um, really is, is an absolutely positive force and it um, produces um, uh, political and intellectual and other forms of, of liberation. Um, and, and Martin Luther is a great hero. Um, th- those themes are still present. Um, what I think is very different about this anniversary from the last one, um, and which is very encouraging, is that the, the sort of open anti-Catholicism, which is so much a feature in 1817 or 1717 or 1617, has completely gone, uh, or almost completely gone, maybe I I should say. And um, last year, the Pope was in Sweden celebrating the anniversary with with Lutheran bishops. um, And in Germany and elsewhere, Catholics have been very involved um, in some of these these celebrations. And um, the idea that that Luther is a figure who belongs only to the other side, to to the Protestants, a kind of symbol of division, I think that's starting to to break down. Mm It's so interesting that, you know, the main theme of your book is uh, how the past speaks to the present and uh, how the present creates the past. Um, we, you know, as you no doubt know, we're, we've been going through a whole debate, the ongoing debate, not settled yet, probably won't be settled anytime soon over what the Civil War means. And um, in the focus specifically on the monuments. And uh, and and this is this is a raging debate over that this this happened ever since the Civil War on what does it mean? 
Absolutely, and uh, as a foreigner, I almost feel kind of like this. Maybe this is a territory I shouldn't tread into. Mm. Um, but I think whatever thinks about that that issue, it absolutely underlines the point that the, the, the past is is not dead and gone. The past is still present around us in you know physical form in in these monuments, and um, uh, obviously. I guess that debate about the Confederate monuments has been divisive, but if something good has, has come out of it, it has become a conversation about history and the meaning of history and how we should remember it and um, whether we can uh, rub out bits of the past that we don't like uh, or whether we need to reinterpret them and allow them to remain but see a broader range of meanings attached to them. Um, I don't think there's been anything quite similar about Reformation <laughs> monuments, thank goodness. So the Luther statues, I think, are, are, are safe. Um, but um, the, the idea that, um, uh, yeah, the past still has political meaning in the present, I think, is very relevant. Let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, Peter Marshall, uh, who is professor of history at University of Warwick, and uh, he is uh, on the USU campus uh, to give a uh, lecture in the Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And uh, the lecture title is Martin Luther and the Invention of the Reformation. That's open to the public, free and open to the public. You're invited uh, 7 p.m. this evening uh, in the auditorium at the Taggart Student Center. And a book signing will follow. The book in question is 1517, Martin Luther and the Invention of the Reformation. After the break, we'll get into uh, talking about more broadly the, the Reformation. And I'm interested in talking about what the Reformation means today, what it meant at the time, and unintended consequences of the Reformation. You've You've uh, spoken in another forum, uh, Professor Marshall, about uh, how Luther would, would have been appalled at some of the <laughs> uh, some of the co- consequences that flowed out from from his actions and his ideas. Uh, we'll talk about that and much more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Office of Global Engagement hosting International Education Week, November 11th through the 17th, with Diwali Around the World Night, Global Food Tasting, and Mr. and Miss International. Details at globalengagement.usu.edu. I'm Corinne LaRue, the Fresh Next Scholar for Utah Public Radio, and part of my job here at UPR is to bring you stories about agriculture in Utah. If you have any comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at the station, we'd love to hear them. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at 1-800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to include the hashtag IamUPR. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, Peter Marshall, who is professor of history at Warwick University. Uh, university of Warwick, I guess, is is that more that's correct? Right. Absolutely. Uh, um, it's a university in Warwick. That's your professor of history there. Uh, by the way, where where is Warwick? Well, at the University of Warwick, I'm, uh, I'm afraid to reveal, is not actually in the town of Warwick. It's okay. in the city of Coventry okay. uh, in, in, in the middle of the UK, mm-hmm. so, so near to Birmingham, which is the, the second city in, in England. Uh, so the town of Warwick is close by and is the, is the medieval county town with some wonderful churches. And um, So I guess the people who established the university thought that was a kind of more attractive label than to call it the University of Coventry. All right, <laughs> it's in Coventry. Uh, a, a very historic place itself. In, uh, indeed, yes. and, and we have Stratford-upon- even very, very close to us as, as well. So uh, that, that century of the Reformation, the 16th century, in some ways feels quite close. Mm. And uh, Peter Marshall is a historian of the uh, the Reformation, and his uh, new book, uh, a very interesting uh, new book, it's called uh, 1517, Martin Luther and the Invention of the Reformation. 
and he's giving a lecture in the Tanner Talks series uh, tonight at 7 o'clock in the auditorium of the Taggart Student Center. Book signing follows, and that event is free and open to the public. Lecture title is Martin Luther and the Invention of the uh, Reformation. Uh, you have a, another book uh, coming out or out as well? Uh, yeah, I have a book which came out earlier in the summer on, on the English Reformation, um, which is called Heretics and Believers, A History of the English Reformation. So it was a more detailed look um, at just that particular side of the story. All right. And of course... Um, 2017, 500th anniversary of the uh, 1517 uh, nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg uh, Castle. Um, an event that probably did not happen, is, is what Professor Marshall is saying. Nevertheless, it has had uh, immense symbolic uh, weight through the years, and that's what he uh, explores uh, in his book, 1517. I want to talk uh, now more broadly about the, the Reformation. Um what do you think the Reformation means today? Wow, that's that, that's a big question. Um, and um, well, I I suppose um, the Reformation is a really important factor in the making of the world that we we know today. I, I guess everybody would kind of agree with that. It, it feels like a kind of watershed uh, in both European and, and and world history. So you know, before these events, a a, a broadly united culture in in Europe, what's sometimes called Christendom. Um, with, uh, uh, despite all sorts of variations between different countries, um, having in common a, a Catholic faith, um, and uh, after the Reformation process, a much more, for good or ill, a much more splintered um, uh, society or set of societies in, in, in Europe, politically, culturally, and, and of course religiously, and, uh, and, and that splintering those divisions uh, then being subsequently exported to, to the other parts of, of the world. I mean, in some ways, I guess, you know, perhaps we as, as Europeans get very focused on what's happening in, in Europe, but, uh, and what we tend to forget in the, it, the, the period of the Reformation is when Christianity really, for the first time, becomes a world faith, a, a global faith. And perhaps from our perspective, looking back, that's almost a, a more important development than some of these things that are going on in, in Wittenberg and parts of eastern Germany in, in the 1520s. Um, and, of course, both Catholics and Protestants are heavily in, involved in that. I mean, just very shortly after Luther may or may not be posting theses in Wittenberg, Franciscan friars are bringing Catholicism to Mexico, and um, other Catholic missionaries are shortly after that uh, active in Asia and Africa. And uh, a little later than that, of course, uh, you have the founding of the American colonies, largely by um, people who are in one sense or another heirs of the Reformation, but have um, found conditions in Europe un uncomfortable for them. So in, in that sort of almost geopolitical sense, the Reformation helps to, to create the world we know today. Mm -hmm. Um, a process of secularization is is interesting here, and I want to bring in you. You wrote in a blog post, by the way, with a provocative title. Uh, I want to read this title. This is at Yale Books. Um, dot uh, co. Dot uk. Um, the English Reformation was Henry VIII, the founder of Roman Catholicism. Yes, uh, it's a provocative and might strike people as, as a rather sort of nonsensical title. But um, I think one of the things I've always wanted to do in my writing about the, the Reformation and other scholars have taken the same line is um, uh, that this is not just a story about the creation of Protestantism and the history of the Protestant movement. The whole spectrum of Christianity is really reshaped by the, these events. Um, and Catholics... Um, 
uh, and not just the kind of you know the leftovers, the people who were the same before and the same after, the people who don't move. Um, I think Catholicism, the meanings of Catholicism, really change as a result of the Reformation in all sorts of detailed ways, but also in just the basic fact that if you're a Catholic in 1600, you know that you're not a Protestant. And a hundred years earlier, when there are no Protestants in 1500, you can't ask yourself that, that question, and, that, and that's significant. Um, and actually, that phrase, Roman Catholicism, you don't really hear being used much, if at all, in the Middle Ages. It's almost a kind of unnecessary or, or meaningless phrase. So um, I guess that's what I was driving at there, that um, Roman Catholicism as a, as a denomination, um, as an in some ways rather more organized, centralized faith with a, a clearer sense of its priorities, that is just as much a creation of these events as the Protestant churches are. Hmm. I want to read uh, just a little passage from this post. Uh, you say, admittedly, only a handful of people refused to swear Henry's 1534 oath of succession. This is where he had uh, people essentially swear allegiance to, the, I guess, the new form of the church. and. Uh, yeah, that's right. Break with the Pope. Um, actually, what he's getting them to swear to is his marriage to Anne Boleyn. Mm. Specifically. And to, specifically, okay. Yeah. Okay. and to recognize that uh, any children born from that marriage will be the rightful heirs to the throne. Um, it doesn't actually mention the Pope directly at all, but of course, if you stop and think about it for a couple of minutes, if you recognize the marriage to Anne Boleyn uh, and Henry's right to divorce, um, his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, uh, that is, of course, um, refusing to recognize the authority of the Pope, who has said this is a complete no-go. Mm-hmm. So, uh, admittedly, only a handful of people refused to swear uh, Henry's uh, 1534 oath of succession. I add parenthetically, I guess, the, the consequences of refusing to swear would be dire. Yeah. Uh, recognizing that, returning to the poster, recognizing the marriage to Anne Boleyn, and implicitly, if unmistakably, renouncing the Pope. But... This demand for a solemn public declaration of assent had likely uh, the likely, if unforeseen, effect of forcing people to pause and reflect about the issues of the day and about where they stood on them. Many people swore reluctantly and uneasily, and so the demands for conformity inadvertently but insidiously fostered the notion that outward obedience and inner assent need not go together. And that's, a, that's an important break with... Yeah. The cohesion that was the medieval world, I okay, guess. Okay, well, let, let me try and unpack that a little bit, if if I can. Um, I suppose, broadly speaking, in, in the medieval world, uh, religion and politics, they're not really very easily separable uh, at all. In theory, everybody is a member of, of the Catholic Church, the Catholic faith. Um, kings uh, fit into this process. Um, they are um, in their offices because they, they represent God's authority, they're consecrated at their coronations, almost like like priests are. Um, So there's no sort of conflict between religious faith and political obedience. Once, of course, you have choices, once you have the Reformation, once you have some kings and princes, Henry VIII, King of Sweden, for example, going one way, um, others, the King of Spain, um, staying with the Pope and and Catholicism, I suppose one option what they would have wanted is all their subjects would have gone with them. That would have been very straightforward. But the reality is not like that. You have religious minorities almost uh, everywhere. So, uh, you know, Catholic minority in in England, um, Protestant minorities in many of the the Catholic German territories and and elsewhere. So, you know, what do people do in in that um, situation? They get a variety of confusing uh, different advice about it, some of it which is pretty hard line. Um, so you actually get, uh, for the, really the first time, a kind of 
rationalization of resistance theory that, you know, actually if a monarch is going against the law of God, it is okay to rebel against them. Um, it's maybe okay even to assassinate them. So you get some pretty radical theories, and both Protestant and Catholics are, are saying some of those, those things. Um, another line is just a kind of passive um, uh, obedience, so you outwardly obey the law, but you know, you, you're still free to believe what you want in, in your heart. And I think that may be a kind of really interesting development, um, that people are perhaps for the very first time having to sort of compartmentalize their, their religion. Um, so in, in England, for example, Catholics often say that they're prepared to obey uh, the monarch. Um, this is true also in Queen Elizabeth's reign in the, the later part of the 16th century. We will, we will obey the queen in all civil matters, right? Um, so we're not going to be traitors. We're not going to be conspiring with the Spanish to overthrow the, the, the country or blow up the houses of parliament or anything like that. But um, we, we still want to have the right to observe our doctrinal religious beliefs. Um, and for, for a long time, the government is saying, no, no, you can't do that. You know, everybody's outwardly got to do the same. Um, and it was one of the things which I makes this period really interesting, I think, is that it's creating these religious divisions, these um, minorities, I guess the sort of technical word we might want to use here is something like pluralism or pluralization. But nobody thinks this is a good thing. <laughs> Um, and almost everywhere for a very long time, the state is saying, no, no, everybody must attend the same church. Everybody must attend, uh, must believe the same thing. And it takes a very long time for societies to work out how that is going to work. It not only takes a very long time, it takes about a century of bloody religious warfare <laughs> before everybody mm -hmm. starts to think, actually, just enforcing our will, eradicating the opposition is not really going to, to work. And there, I think, we do get the... I don't know if we'd want to call it secularization, maybe. Um, I think we certainly might want to call it the privatization of, of religion, mm. that religion can occupy a space which is not the public political space or, or needn't necessarily be that. Mm -hmm. As you were explaining this, uh, this trend, this new belief, this, this, these new attitudes, my mind was going in a direct line to, to America, to these... these you know, through the Enlightenment to to America, these sorts of attitudes are uh, you you can find these written in the Declaration of Independence, in the Constitution, and in in the uh, what you might call you know the secular gospel of of American belief. I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, I'm not an expert on on um, early America, but uh, it, I mean, it does seem to me in a number of ways that there is a kind of straight line here. Uh, and America perhaps really is. <laughs> I know this is something Americans believe about them, themselves, or, or some Americans do, but it has something uh, to, to, um, to uh, say for itself that uh, America is a kind of logical outcome um, of uh, the, the Reformation, or at least how the Reformation politically and, and culturally falls out. That, you know, actually that, that ideal, that Christendom ideal of complete religious uniformity, whether that's uniformity under the Pope or whether that's uniformity under the Bible as Luther or John Calvin in, interprets it. Um, that, is, that, that is simply a practical impossibility. And eventually, people go from thinking it's a practical impossibility to thinking it may actually be a positive good to separate church and state, um, to uh, uh, allow people at least privately to believe what they want so long as it doesn't do harm to their, to their neighbors. Um, to start, actually, I guess to start um, using terms like tolerance and toleration, um, 
which the, the key actors in the Reformation period, you know, absolutely did not think was a social good. You know, they would have been horrified, I think, to, to see this as, as the outcome. So, you know, we, we started a little while ago talking about what the Reformation means today and legacies from the Reformation. But at its best, I suppose, the Reformation produces eventually a society or a set of societies which are comfortable with difference. Um, with you know, le- letting people do their own thing, letting your neighbours believe what they, they want. Mm-hmm. Of course, that ideal has perhaps never really been recognised. And you know, societies which which have difference and different opinions. This is true of the US. It's true of my own country, Britain. Have found you know that's always been difficult to deal with. And actually, in the last year or two, maybe that seemed even more difficult mm-hmm. to deal mm-hmm. with than it, than it has in, yeah. in the more recent past. I was just going to say that uh, you know this is, this is cutting edge political tension, right? That we're we're still trying to work out. And maybe always will in societies where you know where where the boundaries are and and how far is too far and, and how how much conformity we want. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, toleration or tolerance sounds very straightforward, um, but it's actually very difficult. You know, where, where where are the lines drawn? And um, I, I suppose in the origins of that word toleration. Um, means actually putting up with something you know to be wrong or you believe to be wrong. You know, it's let, letting other people be in error. Um, and that's a kind of problematic thing. And, of course, in the, in the Reformation period, letting other people be in error meant literally letting them go to hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and maybe that wasn't a neighborly thing to, to, to do. So um, people may think this is a bit kind of um, uh, too clever by half, but th- there was a sort of positive charitable side to intolerance um, you know, you don't stand to one side and let people damn their own souls. Mm. You know, actually, by coercing them into the truth, um, you were sort of doing them a great favor. Mm. Mm. Uh, just parenthetically, I was watching just uh, last night uh, Monty Python's uh, No One Expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> but uh, I guess, you know, from the point of view of the Inquisitors, is what you're saying is this is a we're, – we're correcting them here, here at the end of their life. We're going to kill them and correct them. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and make any sort of positive case, I think, for the for the Spanish Inquisition. So, I mean, it is interesting that, um, you know, we're thinking about legacies or memories from, from the Reformation. You know, certain things catch our, our imagination, and the Inquisition is, is one of them. It seems almost particularly or peculiarly appalling to most modern, broadly, if we use this phrase, liberal-minded people, that, you know, you would actually use violence, coercion, even torture to try and you know, get people to, to accept the, the, the truth. And um, the, the Inquisition is perhaps the most institutionalized case of this, but of course it was not unique to Spain um, right across Europe in, in, in this period. Um, there was no kind of freedom of, of belief, freedom of worship. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about unintended consequences of the uh, Reformation. I've already touched on several of these. Um, and as we said before, um, Martin Luther and other uh, prominent figures of the Reformation uh, would have been distressed, appalled by, by some of the outcomes from, from what they were trying to do. Uh, more following this break. Did you know that researchers are developing apps to help with depression? Studies have found that online programs can help people learn acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, which has been proven to help with a variety of mental health issues, including depression and anxiety. People who are unsure about starting therapy can first learn ACT skills using an online program and then progress to therapy sessions. The ACT model teaches skills that can be applied in a variety of ways, such as mindfulness, time management, and handling challenging emotions. 
This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. You're listening to Access Utah. We've reached the last segment with uh, Peter Marshall. He's an historian and author. He's a professor of history at the University of Warwick. And he's in uh, Logan, uh, here on the campus of Utah State University, to give a lecture in the Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. This event, 7 o'clock tonight, is free and open to the public. It's in the auditorium of the Taggart Student Center. Book signing follows. The lecture title is Martin Luther and the Invention of the Reformation. Peter Marshall's, uh, one of his uh, new books is 1517, Martin Luther and the Invention of the Reformation. And uh, you're welcome to join this conversation here at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or you can join us to uh, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So, uh, Professor Marshall, unintended consequences of the Reformation, of course, uh, you know, the big movements, you can't possibly foresee what's going to happen. But what what was in Martin Luther's—what did he intend, do you think, and how does that d- diverge from what ha- actually happened? Sure. Uh, well, I think many of the things we've just been, been talking about, uh, the great diversity and, and plurality that comes out of the Reformation is absolutely not was intended by, by Martin Luther. And um, I suppose there's a problem here right from the get-go, uh, which is that um, we can only— see history or read history backwards, you know, we always know what's going to happen next. So we can think about origins or beginnings. But the actors in these dramas, of course, didn't have that opportunity, and they're living history forwards. So I think that will be the kind of first point. What is Martin Luther thinking um, in 1517 or in the years after that? Um, He's absolutely not thinking um, I'm going to found a new church, and I'm going to, you know, call it Lutheranism. And, uh, um, L- L- Luther, of course, is he's a Catholic friar. He's in in some ways maybe not a typical, but but certainly a kind of representative um, product of of the late Middle Ages. And um, he starts with a feeling that this one particular aspect of of the church's teaching on indulgences needs to be reformed. He then perhaps starts thinking the church as a whole needs to be reformed, but certainly absolutely no intention of splitting the church or founding a new denomination. Um, And actually terms like Lutheran for a long time, were not used by people as labels for themselves. They were insults given to them by by others. Um, actually, Protestant functioned in that way for quite a long while as well. This was a word that that Catholics used um, principally about their, their enemies. So I think that's that's the sort of first and most significant unintended consequence: the actual splitting of the church, um, which um, Luther, I suppose, by the end of his life ha- has become comfortable with or accepted that the the Roman church, as he would have called it, has shown itself beyond reform, but that was absolutely not his hope and Mm -hmm. and intention earlier. And, of course, the the, the seemingly endless wars that that ensued, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Would have distressed Luther and the others, yeah. Nobody nobody would want that, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, uh, Actually, you were talking about my my blog post. I did did another one (laughs) recently where I was asked to think of um, myths about the Reformation. 
um, and I was told I could have five myths or, or, or ten myths, um, and a bit whimsically I thought I would have 9.5 myths. Uh, <laughs> and, and the point five mm. was the Reformation creates the modern world, which is kind of true and kind of not true. But, but one of the ones I wanted to put in um, was the idea that a founding principle of Luther and the Reformation was that people should be able to read Scripture and make up their own minds about it. Mm. That seems to me is an absolutely key unintended consequence. Luther thinks that the Roman Church, the Catholic Church, the papacy has twisted the meaning of, of Scripture um, and that it's his kind of God-given mission to put that right. Um, but he thought that the meaning of the Bible would be pretty clear and obvious to anybody who you know read it um, without these uh, popish preconceptions. Um, and uh, maybe that was a kind of naive thought because once people started reading the Bible, particularly in their own language, uh, they started seeing all sorts of things in it which the theologians didn't see, or they started not seeing in it things which the theologians thought were there or were kind of implicitly there. I mean, to give important examples of, of this, um, uh, whether infants should be baptized, one of the great debates of the Reformation, and one, of course, is is still a line in Christianity today between those churches who practice adult baptism uh, and those who baptize infants. Uh, a crucial issue in the 16th century because baptism was about becoming part of the, the community, so it had real social and political implications as well as just uh, theological ones. Um, and Luther, along with Calvin and all the other sort of mainline reformers, thought that you know baptizing infants was a pretty good practice and we should carry on doing it. Um, but on the other hand, quite a lot of people looked at the text of the Gospels and said, well, it doesn't happen here. You know, Jesus is, John the Baptist is baptizing adults in the River Jordan, um, and Jesus himself comes to be baptized as, as an adult. So uh, that kind of issue um, is an unintended consequence. And, and Luther and um, some of the other Protestant reformers actually join with the Catholics in really persecuting the Anabaptists, the people who believe in adult baptism. And of course, it's many of um, their successors who, who come to the United States in, in later centuries. Um, and perhaps even more radical ideas, which go to the very heart of Christianity, um, the doctrine of the Trinity, something Catholics and Protestants to this day largely agree about, that you know, God is one, but he is also three, the Father, the Son, and, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are people who point out already in the 16th century that word Trinity doesn't actually seem to appear anywhere in the Bible. Um, actually, maybe you know, God is just one. Um, I guess what we call today Unitarianism. So a, a whole spectrum of religious beliefs come out of a kind of, I suppose we could call it a free inquiry, um, but absolutely not one that the fathers of the Reformation had intended or wanted. As you look back, as you say, you know, as you look back, you you have the luxury of of seeing seeing what events will come. Um, but Luther does arrive at just the right time, right for for big events to happen. Um, there were reformers, protesters before, and they were just killed. What what, what had changed by the time that Luther came? came yeah, around? very interesting. Um, and I guess this is one of the questions that. Um, those of us who, who write and teach about the Reformation are, are always being asked, would there have been a Reformation without Martin Luther? So in a sense, is Luther the, the cause of these events or is he just a kind of catalyst? Um, and I think you can make that argument both ways, to, to, to be honest. Um, you know, in some ways, uh, th there are real structural tensions and issues, particularly in Germany, 
People will think about the, the printing press, which is a relatively new technology. It's been around for maybe 70 years or so by the time Luther starts getting upset about indulgences. That makes it possible to publicize his message in a way that the messages of other radical reformers uh, hadn't been able to, to previously. Um, there is across Europe a kind of, I guess we could call it, growing nationalism. So uh, a number of princes are already thinking about ways they might want to reshape their relationship with, with Rome. Um, uh, there's a kind of in Germany particularly a sort of hostility to the idea that these foreigners, these Italians are kind of the holding offices in, in the church. So you could see Luther just as the person who kind of lights the, the, the touch paper on, on all of this. But I think for my money, I'd still want to put Luther at the center of the story. Something we haven't talked about yet is, um, uh, although I said Luther just now was in some ways a rather typical medieval figure, the, the idea he arrives at um, justification by faith alone, uh, that people's salvation is entirely independent of their own efforts, that the point of being a Christian is simply to uh, accept the grace which is offered to you um, without any merit of your own but by God. That's a truly radical idea, and uh, although it has roots in the Middle Ages, nobody had ever quite formulated it um, in that way before. Of course, a lot of people don't quite understand it, don't quite see what Luther means by it. And um, it, it's sometimes suggested that, you know, after Luther, Protestantism spends about 400 years rowing back from that and finding <laughs> ways in which, you know, good works and human effort can be put, put back into the, the story. So L Luther's doctrinal ideas, I think, are important. What's also really important, I think, is Luther's stubbornness. He is a really difficult person. Uh, we, we mentioned right at the start of this conversation his um, friend, younger friend and associate Philip Melanchthon, who in some ways seems a kind of more attractive personality. Melanchthon is a great conciliator. He always sees two sides of the story. He's actually willing to compromise with the Catholics over the things he thinks are inessential, maybe to try and reunify the church. Um, but people like Melanchthon don't make revolutions and don't drive through revolutionary change. And um, Luther's stubbornness, the, the famous moment, the one which um, I think, perhaps unlike the poster of the 95 Theses, absolutely does happen uh, and perhaps deserves its mythic statements, uh, his mythic status, his appearance before the Diet of Worms in 1521 in front of the emperor and all the great men of Germany, the princes and the archbishops, um, told to recant his books. And, and he knows that the possible... Um, consequences of refusing to do so might be um, uh, execution as a heretic, um, but he says that uh, that he cannot. His conscience is captive to the word of God, and so he will not recount his books. So you know Luther's um, pig-headedness, in, in a sense, um, has both an attractive and an unattractive side to it. He has tremendous feuds and hatreds that really drive him in important ways. But but without that, I think. Um, things would have turned out very, very differently. Whether there would have been a reformation of some kind, um, it's it's hard to say, but it wouldn't have been the kind of reformation that we actually get. And uh, I guess that's all of what you've said it makes Luther a very attractive symbol, and he's been used in, in many different ways and, and still being used as a symbol. Absolutely. I think people are fascinated with Martin Luther. I don't know whether this is absolutely true or not, but it has been said that he's had more written about him than any other person other than Jesus Christ. Um, and there's been a huge spate of, of books this this year, of course. So um, even though there is a very unattractive side to Luther, we haven't mentioned yet his um, uh, anti-Semitic mm -hmm. writings, which are just uh, appalling from the point of view of um, I, I hope, all reasonable-minded modern um, people. The fact that he sometimes very firmly lies 
lines up with political authority. Um, he's fully supportive, for example, of the, the repression of the German peasants who rise up um, thinking, actually, that maybe Luther will be on their side and that when he talks about the liberty of the gospel, he means a kind of liberation from serfdom and from oppressive conditions. But, you know, Luther absolutely does not mean that. His liberation is a, a spiritual one. And so, you know, he um, actually writes a terrible tract urging the princes to smite, slay, kill whoever they can in order to put down this social I insurrection. Um, so there is that kind of unattractive side to Luther. But, but nonetheless... Um, someone who had a tremendous sense of humor, um, who goes on this extraordinary life journey from being a, a tortured Catholic monk uh, to being an apparently um, happily married husband and, and father, um, who, who tells jokes, who's extraordinarily rude. And there's lots of you know, farting and excrement in you know, Luther's conversation. Um, so he's a larger-than-life figure in all kinds of ways. That's uh, perhaps a good way to uh, end it. We are at the end of our conversation. I want to alert you to an opportunity to hear more about uh, Martin Luther and about the Reformation from uh, Peter Marshall, who's uh, a professor of history at the University of Warwick. He's on the USU campus to give a uh, talk in the Tanner Talks series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And uh, that talk is titled Martin Luther and the Invention of the Reformation. It's in the auditorium of the Taggart Student Center. Book signing follows. And that begins at 7 p.m. today. And uh, you are welcome. It's free and open to the public. Uh, one of the late, latest books from uh, Peter Marshall is 1517, Martin Luther and the Invention of the Reformation. Professor Marshall, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Ted Twinting, and I am a development officer with Utah Public Radio. Underwriting with UPR allows you and your business to capture the attention and ears of informed, educated, and savvy consumers across the state of Utah. To learn more about becoming a sponsor with UPR, call our development team at 435 435- 